And so the whole idea is that readiness is a continuous state. Things are always changing. There are external and internal influences. And enablement is a critical part of readiness, but it can't work unless you know what good looks like so that you can identify how you're going to train your people to make them emulate those behaviors you want them to. Welcome to the State of Sales Enablement Podcast with your host, Felix Kruger. Insights and actionable advice from B2B marketing and sales experts that share what it takes to achieve sales enablement excellence. Alex, welcome to the State of Sales Enablement. Thanks for joining the show. Well, thank you for having me, Felix. I'm happy to be here. Where are you dialing in from today? Well, I live on an island off the coast of Massachusetts called Martha's Vineyard, which is a resort community, and we are about to be uh, pounced upon by lots of tourists as the summer season begins. But I'm comfortably in my house, and they can't get in, so I'm happy right now. <laughs> Lovely. You're a Boston Celtics fan? I am a Boston Celtics fan. I can't believe you brought that up. We can just move on now. <laughs> they just make it to the finals, but... That's right. This might date the episode because we all have a bit of a delay always with the publishing, but yeah, Boston Celtics just lost to the Warriors who are anybody who's not familiar, but I'm hopeful uh, for Boston for the coming years. So not all hope is lost. I know that you're in Australia and for several years, the Boston Celtics had a guy named Aaron Baines who played for them and he was a... Uh, Great Aussie basketball player and a uh, great Boston Celtic. That's right. Alex, so for those people not familiar with your name, what is your background and what do you do now? Well, I am the VP of readiness at MindTickle. Readiness, and we'll talk about this more as the conversation continues, but readiness encompasses more than simply sales enablement, and I'll go into that in a little while. But my background is uh, pretty mixed and probably pretty unusual for somebody doing what I'm doing. I spent the first long time in my career as a bag carrying salesperson selling B2B software. And in fact, in my last sales capacity, I was working in a company in the space that I'm currently in as a salesperson, but then switched over to product marketing, which I did for 10 years. And I, in fact, was a product marketing leader here at MyTickle, where I work now. And then just at the beginning of this year, I was asked to take over this role as VP of readiness. So this is a relatively new position for me, although I've been at MindTickle for a while, and I've certainly been in the space for a long time. So that's kind of where I am at the moment. I appreciate the product marketing angle because in my previous sales enablement roles, I also had product marketing responsibility, which a lot of enablers in the SaaS space would consider the sales enablement gig from hell because I didn't only have to do the regular sales enablement things and initiatives. I also had to do the product marketing side of things and I had a quota. So it was pretty much the hardest conditions you can operate in. So I appreciate that you have that background and that lens as well in your role. Yeah. You know, it's funny in the absence of a sales enablement role within the organization, that responsibility often falls on the product marketing org. And even where sales enablement exists in a company, often product marketing is the primary feeder of content and messaging and positioning. So those two kinds of wars are usually tied at the hip in some way. You briefly made the distinction between sales enablement and sales readiness. So for those listeners that are not familiar or are not deeply familiar with the sales readiness space, what is your definition of sales readiness? That's a great question, Felix. We happen to exist in a space where there's a lot of gray area when it comes to definitions. I mean, people have been arguing over the definition of even sales enablement for years now. But the way that we distinguish sales readiness from sales enablement 
is to say that sales enablement is important, it's vital, and it's a part of sales readiness. So the real difference is that when we think of sales enablement, we think of the training, practice, and reinforcement that takes place to get salespeople prepared to sell. When we think about sales readiness, we're thinking of it in a more encompassing way. So when we talk about sales readiness, we start at sort of the place where you set up your archetypal sales rep. What is your ideal rep profile? That's the term we often use here. Everybody I'm sure on this listening to this podcast is familiar with the concept of an ideal customer profile. And really it's taking the same idea that you apply to your customers who are the best people to sell to and just applying it to your salespeople who are the best salespeople on our org. How do we emulate those behaviors, really the knowledge, skills, and behaviors that they have so that we can replicate them among the other salespeople in the company. So we start with this concept of what does good look like? How do we define excellence? What's that ideal rep profile? And then you build the training practice and reinforcement, the sales enablement activities to help all those salespeople get to that level, to be like that ideal rep providing individualized remediation along the way, because everybody obviously comes from a different place and some people are good at some things and some at others. Then you reinforce that with the availability of just-in-time content. But what's really important, I mean, all of it's really important, but what really, I think, creates that distinction that enables us to even identify what that ideal rep looks like is the ability to measure what's going on in the field. Find out how people are performing when they're in the field selling and then relate that back to those skills that they're supposed to have and decide, hey, what is Felix really good at? Maybe he's great at doing discovery and presenting, but when it comes to maybe closing or boxing out the competition, he needs some work on those things. And then taking that information that comes from them having real conversations with their buyers and then providing individualized either coaching from their frontline managers or remediation based on those individualized skill gaps. And then measuring again, seeing how people are doing. And so the whole idea is that readiness is a continuous state. Things are always changing. There are external and internal influences. And enablement is a critical part of readiness, but it can't work unless you know what good looks like so that you can identify how you're going to train your people to make them emulate those behaviors you want them to. And considering the journey that a salesperson would go through during a readiness program, is it worth putting emphasis when designing a program also on the hiring process and the sort of skills that you look for in the first place? Because it's obviously harder to build certain skills from the ground up and make sure those are developed based on best practice compared to hiring a ready salesperson, so to speak, into the organization. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think they go hand in hand. And I think it's an iterative process. Most B2B companies these days employ some sort of a testing methodology to see what skills prospective salespeople have before they bring them on board. And those can be very effective. Although, I mean, I think it's always good to really measure how your reps are doing versus what you hired to. And to that point, it's a great starting point for building out what that ideal rep looks like. So you know what you're hiring to, and those are probably the same capabilities that you would want a salesperson to have and that you would want to measure. So you measure those competencies as it were, and you see how people are succeeding. It's really important to understand, and I didn't mention this before, but it's really important to see how those skills translate into the bottom line, whether or not they're actually generating revenue, they're achieving quota and so on, and then say, hey, 
are these the right things that we're supposed to be hiring to? Or should we be changing our hiring profile based on the competencies that seem to be the most important for our company? So that hiring profile is a good place to start. But like everything else that happens in the B2B world, you've got to be flexible enough to recognize that things might not be exactly as you thought they were. And you may have to evolve your hiring decisions and the way that you train your people over time. So you guys obviously are a vendor, although MindTickle, the business that you work for as a vendor in the sales readiness space, and you guys are sitting on a very rich data pool that provides insight into what best practice looks like, how maturity levels look like. So I want to ask you, what are the different maturity levels around the world, across regions, across industries, and broadly speaking, what does best practice look like in the sales readiness space? Yeah, I can answer that in a couple of different ways. I mean, I think if you look at sort of the sales enablement space in general, how people have traditionally looked at it, and then you think about that old crossing the chasm philosophy that Jeffrey Moore's et al. talked about a while ago now in the software industry, in the tech space, for example, I think most organizations recognize that they have a need to do sales enablement. They have people that are dedicated to it. They're spending money on it. In other industries, that is not necessarily the case. I'm kind of, because of where I am, I'm sort of U.S. centric. So I think often like some companies in the middle part of our country, maybe don't think about sales enablement. They think about sales training or they even think about just learning and development, that sort of thing. So if you look at it from that perspective, the maturity of organizations across industries can be vastly different depending upon the emphasis they put on very bespoke sales enablement to really make sure that their people are effective. But another way to think about it is we have a maturity model we talk about that has sort of five levels. The starting level is just where you're sort of developing your sellers. You're putting together an onboarding program. A lot of times those onboarding programs are basically built on napkins and spreadsheets just to get salespeople up and going. And that's all they use. And then, you know, eventually they might move on to a place where they're more focused on proficiency. They're using reinforcement methodologies. They might be incorporating some more modern micro-learning technologies. They might at least endorse the use of coaching by frontline sales managers, but that's still at a fairly early stage. But frankly, that's where a lot of companies are right now. And then more advanced companies start thinking about a more of a readiness-focused approach to their sales org. And then they're incorporating conversation intelligence technologies. They're using AI to help them with their coaching. They're providing more access to just-in-time learning so that they're really managing the process, not just from the formal learning perspective, but also very much when salespeople are in the field selling. I'd say that right now, some of the more advanced companies are probably around there. But then, you know, there's another level, which is using CRM data and comparing it. So you're actually seeing how people are performing in the field and compare that to the enablement work that you've done to see, is that actually driving revenue and things like that? And then finally, when you're achieving sort of continuous excellence, then you're combining all of these things that you're doing with some of the RevOps data that you're also collecting. So you have this really well-oiled machine. And then frankly, you know, the farther you go up this food chain, the more strategic the sales enablement role is so that it becomes readiness as that sort of writ large idea becomes as strategic to the organization as, for example, the person that runs your RevOps. This right now is still rarefied air. There aren't that many companies that are doing it, 
But that's really where I think the industry is going eventually. We're constantly quantifying everything that we do in a company, and they're obviously attempting to quantify as much as possible in sales. And that's sort of the logical conclusion where you get to this point where what's happening at every step in the sales process is correlated back to the enablement that takes place. And so that you can make fine-tuned adjustments to your enablement activities to make sure that you're having the greatest impact on revenue. So when it comes to actually building out readiness programs, some listeners might be investigating this topic right now because they're planning on building out a sales readiness program. What are typically the steps that organizations would go through to build out a program and where would they focus in order to reap the greatest benefits? Well, I think one of the biggest hurdles that a lot of organizations have to overcome is the involvement of a consensus of people within the organization. And they have to understand what the appetite is for really engaging in a readiness program. I think a lot of organizations put together a sales enablement program because it sounds like a really good idea, right? Who doesn't want to enable their sales force? But in doing so, they don't really quantify the value that that has on the org. And there's a self-limiting factor to that, right? If you can't go to the CRO and really provide them with some level of value for the money spent on it, it puts the sales enabler in a kind of a precarious position because they can only get so much done. And when cuts have to take place, it often takes place to the people that can't quantify their existence. So when you're thinking about putting together a sales readiness program, I think a really important thing for you to do is think about how you can quantify the value of what you're offering, not just in terms of adoption. And frankly, a lot of our customers have been in this place and sort of historically say, hey, how did your sales enablement program go? And they say, well, we got 97% adoption. It was great. <laughs> But you know, adoption is not a surrogate for success. Adoption is a great way to say that people are actually using your training. But if we have 97% adoption and sales went down by 37% last year, nobody is going to say that your adoption made the difference or hopefully not because that wouldn't be a good thing. So what you want to do is really think about how can I involve the CRO? How can I get RevOps into this picture? How can I get people to think about not just enabling people for enablement's sake, but as a strategic component of a corporate go-to-market strategy? Because just as an example, if marketing puts out great messaging and your salespeople all stink at delivering it, It doesn't matter. There are a lot of people who should be highly invested in a sales readiness program. And that's a great place to get some momentum is to help people understand the impact of your activities and help work with them to find ways to measure that impact. And that does require more than just the enablement person looking at adoption. Where do you typically see the greatest impact being made? Like in which part of the readiness program? Because there's obviously a whole lot of different things you can do and different things you can focus on. What do you typically see makes the biggest difference to revenue metrics? Well, I can tell you from my own experience as first a salesperson, and a marketer, and then in this role, that the traditional sales enablement activities that people engage in, which typically include micro-learning, some level of assessments, things like that, they are reasonably good at transferring knowledge. Although... As we know in this business, everybody knows about the forgetting curve. If you don't use that knowledge, it goes away. So I think reinforcement is really important and it can take place in a few different ways. We use, for example, at MindTickle, we have this concept of space reinforcements where, you know, you deliver 
AI-based reinforcements that are timed to test people's knowledge and to reinforce that knowledge that they've learned so that testing onto long-term memory. And the other thing that we do, and I think it's really important, is we use AI-driven role plays. So it's a way for people to practice in a safe space before money's on the line to make sure they're not only understanding concepts, but they're actually delivering concepts. And then when they're in the field selling, the use of conversation intelligence to measure how they're doing when they're in the field. So we've talked about basketball before. So I think sort of the three key components of it are this idea of knowledge, skills, and behavior. So if you're thinking about basketball, knowledge is watching a whole bunch of YouTube videos about how to take a jump shot. Skills is going to the gym when nobody else is around and taking a hundred jump shots. And then behavior is actually being in a game with some guy on your back and trying to hit that turnaround fadeaway jumper, right? And if you can do that third one, that's really where the money's at. That's what counts. And so that's really what we think about to effectively implement a, a program for our customers and for ourselves for that matter. And in terms of the customer data that you've gathered and you guys have recently released that state of sales readiness report, what were some of the key insights and some of the surprising things you've learned based on that report? There are a lot of insights, probably more than I can go into right now. But some of the things that we learned that I think were really interesting is that one of the first metrics that a lot of our customers care about is time to first deal. And what we found is that organizations that are able to build repeatable onboarding programs from templates, and of course, MindTickle offers these templates, are able to reduce the amount of time it takes to build a new program from on average six weeks down to about seven days so that you can get those programs up and running a whole lot more quickly. And what we've also found, and remember, a lot of the data that we analyzed was data that came from MindTickle customers and then compared to some industry data that we're aware of. So for example, according to CSO Insights, which is some research a few, I think it was a couple of years ago, the average ramp time for a rep is somewhere between six and nine months, but that time can be reduced to four to five months using MindTickle. So the idea that you can get salespeople up and running a lot more quickly and getting to that first deal is a pretty compelling story for our customers. Those are surprising things. One of the other surprising pieces of data that I thought was sort of fascinating is that we found that the average discovery call that a sales rep does is 36 minutes, which I thought was pretty interesting. I think reps probably, you know, when they get that first call on the line, they probably say, hey, can I take half an hour of your time and do discovery? What our averages say is that probably takes longer. Now, the funny thing, and I'll just share my own experience anecdotally, is that when I see really good discovery, it doesn't take 36 minutes. You're taking up probably a full hours of somebody's time. But having said that, I think the way you do that is by saying, hey, can I take a half an hour of your time? But you do such a good job that you get totally entrenched in the conversation and you end up taking an hour. And I think that's when you know you've got a good discovery call. But there's really probably more data within our state of sales readiness report to go over than I could possibly share now. But you know what I will say is that generally speaking, what we see is that in order to make salespeople successful, you've got to attack a problem with a variety of different tools. So I talked about the idea of using traditional micro-learning, space reinforcements, role play, coaching, 
using conversation snippets as a way to do it. So one of the things that we've seen with our successful customers is that they're using a variety of media to engage their sales reps. As a former salesperson, I can tell you firsthand that I have the worst attention span in the world and probably not surprising to anybody. Most salespeople do as well. And you've got to think of imaginative ways to constantly keep them engaged or else most of your work is going to end up on the cutting room floor. That's right. I want to go back to a point that we touched on earlier about the skill set that you hire for versus the skill set that you teach. I think this is always something that needs to be balanced by any organization by providing a framework that can be followed versus also allowing for some flexibility and for people bringing their own style to the table. How do you think that can be done in sales readiness? How do you provide a framework that prepares sales for being out there and actually doing their job based on previous best practices versus allowing for some flexibility for sales reps to bring their own style to the table and to actually innovate in a way that might potentially even benefit the organization? Well, that's a really good question, Phyllis, because I think every good sales rep has their own approach. I've listened to a lot of calls from our salespeople and you can't prescribe personality, right? Everybody's got their own personality and they're going to incorporate their own style into the selling process. I think you have to walk a delicate balance between being prescriptive and allowing people to demonstrate the things that they're good at. I think the way that you do it is you get fairly specific about the kinds of activities that you want people to engage in. You know, I mean, a perfect example is when you're doing a discovery call, you don't spend a whole bunch of time talking about your company and your products. You really are spending that time trying to understand what the customer wants and teasing enough about your product that they're interested in finding more. But usually that ends up being because you've been asking really interesting questions, not because you were talking about your product. So within the scope of understanding what good discovery looks like, I think you can allow your salespeople a fair amount of latitude to engage in the behavior that makes the most sense for them. And especially where they do something that's really good. Now you can, you know, using this conversation intelligence, for example, you can take snippets from a call and you can say, hey, listen, Felix did an amazing job right when somebody was talking about this one problem that they had and enabling them to think about it in a way that's more oriented toward the solution that we offer. And so by using evidence that's, first of all, real world based, which always adds a lot more credibility than a guy like me saying it's a good idea. You're able to, number one, applaud good behavior. You're able to propagate best practices and you can share peer learning. I mean, there's so much research. What I can think of off the top of my head is Forrester's not much research on this is that when you look at top sellers and like the kind of learning they like to do, it's from peers. They don't want to hear me telling them what to do. I'm not a sales guy. It used to be, but I'm not. They want to hear what the guy who's in the chair next to them is doing. And so a really important aspect of building your sales work is taking the best ideas from people who are in the field and figuring out what those are and propagating them to other people. And that's a really good way to allow people to express their own behaviors and propagate the best of them to everybody else. Very interesting point you raised there also around actually allowing for improvement through that peer-to-peer learning. But if management have launched a sales readiness program and want to make sure that it consistently improves, how do you make sure you actually keep it up to date and it's not something like the pandemic occurs and suddenly everything you've done previously is outdated? How do you make sure that 
you stay on your toes and constantly revisit if what you're doing is the right thing to do and if your sales readiness program is as good as it could be? That's a good question. I think what you constantly have to do is measure. So in MindTickle's instance, the way we do that is we have this capability within our product. We call it the readiness index. And what it does is that it performs that correlation between the demonstrated competencies and results in the CRM. So we're saying that you are really good at these five things, and then we're going to show how you're doing as a percentage of quota or however you want to measure it and see if they correlate. So if you're really doing these five things really well, and you're at 28% of quota, maybe we're looking at the wrong five things. But, you know, most companies have a critical mass. They have enough salespeople that they can make some statistically significant observations about the behaviors that enable them to succeed using this correlation with outcomes so that they can say, hey, these are right on and they, you know, seem to be correlating with good results. And these other ones are maybe not exactly right. And I think we have to rethink whether these are the exact skills we want to train to. So as I alluded to earlier on in our conversation, this kind of thing is constantly evolving. For example, in not just in the States, but everywhere, regulations constantly change. So if you're in financial services, one day you can say one thing, and then that's totally against the rules the next day. So you've got to change how people do things. And, you know, market pressures, the way your competitors are positioning you, new innovations your company comes out with, these things are constantly changing. And as a result, the competencies that the salespeople that you have need to demonstrate are also changing and you have to constantly measure. If somebody thinks that they've got it sussed the first time out, they're going to be mistaken. Through iteration, things will get better or you're going to stagnate because somebody else is thinking of a better way to build that mousetrap. So am I right in assuming then if there are really high performers when it comes to the actual revenue performance, but they don't perform well according to the sort of measurements you've put in place, that that is a reason to investigate what they're doing differently? Absolutely. So if you think about it, if you're measuring knowledge, behavior, and results, and they seem not to have the knowledge you think they're supposed to have, but they're killing it, what are the reasons for that? Well, one of the possible reasons is you have just stuck them in the gold mine territory of your company and you could put a not very smart puppy in there and the dog would do great. Or you're measuring to the wrong things. Now, most sales orgs know what a good territory looks like. And so they have to take that into to some account. But often, I think the more interesting situation is You've got this person who's scoring really well on your competencies and they're sucking wind. Are they in the wrong territory? Are we measuring the wrong competencies? These are questions you have to ask. You don't always get them right the first time, but over time, you can figure out what it is and start making meaningful adjustments. But I'm not going to pretend to tell you that right off the top, you're going to be able to get it all right and it's going to be smooth sailing. Nothing in business happens that way. It takes time, it takes knowledge. And what we're doing is we're giving you the knowledge to make informed decisions about salespeople, their territories, and their training. Alex, on that note, thank you so much for joining the show today. I've learned a lot more about sales readiness. And if anybody wants to connect with you online, learn more about MindTickle or download the report, where can they do that? They can go to our website to download the State of Sales Readiness Report. As far as 
reaching out to me, of course, they can always reach out to me on LinkedIn. I am reasonably sure that I am the only Alex Salop in LinkedIn. They can always reach out to me that way, or of course, reach out to me at MindTickle and they can access information about me if they go to the blog or just reach out to uh, LayInto at MindTickle.com. Alex, thank you so much for joining the State of Sales Enablement. Thank you so much, Milos. It was great talking to you and I hope you have a great day. Next time on the State of Sales Enablement. In sales, we're obsessed with us-led action, which is I set out a proposal. How many proposals did you send out this month? A hundred. Great. Who gives a shit? Like I could send a proposal to my mum. <laughs> and it's like, it's an us-led action. The signal we should really keep an eye on is customer-led action.